You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. I'm Dr. Jaron Stout, and I am Dr. Joanne Pio, and we are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio. Today, we are recording live at the San Diego Conference of ASCP 2021, and uh, we are lucky enough to have some pretty cool guests. Yes. Today, we have Dr. Tatiana Gerbic and Dr. Alexis Lang. They presented the pharmacist's role in preventing elder abuse during the COVID-19 pandemic. All right. So I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like When I saw the title of that, I was like, how in the world are we going to make this connection? So I, I went in and I listened to the whole thing. It was great. So there's a lot of great pointers you guys had. So thank you for bringing that up and, and discussing that with everybody. That was awesome. So just for the listeners, can you first define elder abuse and explain the different types that there are? Sure. So elder abuse is can be defined in many ways, but it's really like the general way would be, you know, any mistreatment of, of an older adult. There's like five main types. So that would be through physical abuse, financial, psychosocial, sexual, and neglect. And neglect can either be neglect by a caregiver and other or by self. So if the patient is really neglecting their own care. And then what are some of the red flags of elder abuse that pharmacists should be watching out for? That's a great question. It really varies by the setting you're in. I think what as pharmacists we can detect. Some things that we talked about during our talk would be kind of drastic changes in the patient's behavior, appearance, anything that seems unusual and different from their normal. So it it absolutely helps to have that relationship with them. But I think if you don't too, you can also detect red flags, particularly in medication regimens, unsafe or unusual use of medications. And I don't know, Dr. Gervich, if you want to add anything else. So when you're looking at medication use patterns, they're just not what they're supposed to be. So some medications being asked for refill more frequently than they should have lasted, the supply should have lasted. When you're interviewing patients, they kind of look to somebody else to answer all the questions when they're cognitively intact and perfectly capable of answering the questions themselves. When you're seeing strange medication regimens that don't, that shouldn't be regularly used. So, you know, I've seen cases where patients were giving medications they were actually never prescribed. Mm. And so, like what I pointed out in the lecture is one patient was given glipizide who was not diabetic and he kept coming into clinic either completely out of it and at one point just passed out in the clinic. And so he was rushed to the hospital and they investigated and they actually drew a glipizide level and it was positive. And who would think to do that? Yeah. But so yeah. Then where did the glipizide come from? And it turned out the daughter who was a nurse was administering glipizide to this person. I mean, that's criminal, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. I, I'm just surprised that anyone would even think of that. Like, how did they get it? How did they get this idea? It's just, it's unbelievable. Well, so when you look at who abuses older adults, the most likely person are the children of the patient. And that brings me up to just a little sub-question, because you guys touched on the lecture, who performs which type of abuse? So kind of touch on that real quick. Yeah, so when we look at the breakdown of types of perpetrators of elder abuse, we see that over 50% are family members. And then like further breaking that down, 
adult children and caregivers are more likely to be committing financial abuse, which kind of makes sense. You know, if you're thinking about children relying on their parents for money, or especially we talked about in the pandemic, some people losing jobs and, you know, where are they going to get those payments from? It's kind of, unfortunately, may seem easy to take from that older adult that might go unnoticed. And then another thing we talked about was with spouses and also caregivers can be more commonly committing physical abuse. And so Dr. Gervich gave a example too of how we saw caregivers kind of roughly treating a resident and a patient. And that can happen with spouses too. Those kind of more intimate relationships are more likely to have that physical abuse aspect. Great. Thank you. So during your presentation, you also discussed the topic of ageism. What is ageism and how does it impact an individual's healthcare? Yeah, so I, I'll plug into when I was at USC doing my PharmD, I also studied, I also got my master's in gerontology and studied aging and really was fascinated by ageism and how it, it plays a role in even my care as a pharmacist with older adults. And so ageism is that discrimination based on age. And it's one of those isms that we really will all experience no matter what group we're in right now, because we all will in a sense, hopefully get older. And so ageism, you know, is, is perpetuated by so many different prejudices and stereotypes by all of these negative images we're inundated with, like every day in the media and our culture about how bad aging is and how hard it can be. And, you know, you can't do anything, you lose your memory and everything just seems negative and hearing those images throughout our whole lifespan can actually be pretty detrimental to our health and our health care and how we seek out care, how we receive care. And so when we think about that with in terms of elder abuse, I think it's it's pretty clear how seeing those images can make someone see older people as as less than, but can also deter people from thinking older people may need equal care or, or as much care. And I think was was absolutely heightened by the pandemic, which is something that we really wanted to highlight because, you know, older adults are were at higher risk for having more complications from COVID and having more ageist ideas out there in the media and, you know, people thinking that, that they might not be as deserving of care because they have maybe fewer years left, I think was was really unfortunate. So you mentioned in the presentation that one of the risk factors for elder abuse was a lack of like social connection and isolation. So how would you describe, and you kind of touched on it before, how did the COVID-19 pandemic impact elder abuse and ageism? Sure. So, I mean, we all had those shelter in place, stay at home orders, which you know, kept people at home potentially with their with their abusers, but also removed them from a lot of social networks and social support systems that we have in place and a lot of communities have with senior centers and community centers. So I think that unfortunately played a pretty big role in, in perpetuating ageism by removing older adults from our communities, but also keeping people more at home and, and more isolated. And we know isolation is, is a very big risk factor for elder abuse. And neglect, you know, neglecting seniors who are stuck at home, unable to leave the home and go anywhere, that's all, that also really plays into this pandemic. 
And I know there have been lots of programs that have been set up that mostly I think are university-based, but I'm sure there's some community outreach programs as well where you have volunteers. Like in my case, I work for university, so we have student volunteers from different professional schools, you know, reaching out to the seniors who are completely isolated at home without any contact with the outside world and and seeing if, if they need anything. You know, how do you access food? How do you access transportation? How do you get your medications delivered to you? So those kinds of services were more developed during the pandemic, which I think probably helped a lot. Great. So one of the things you touched on during your presentation was uh, you presented a case study that, you know, was one of the many ways that we pharmacists can use to to help identify and address elder abuse. So kind of talk about the pharmacist's role and how we can do that and how we can help. So we presented two cases. Yeah, I kind of liked the one with modafinil and trazodone, but you can do both of them. I, that'd be great. Okay, you do that one. Yeah, so the one with modafinil and trazodone was an, an older male. He was part of a transitions of care consult and In this setting, we have pharmacists that touch base with the patients once they go home from either an inpatient stay or facility stay. And so this this man, he was prescribed modafinil inpatient. He had obstructive sleep apnea, and it seemed from his admission was, was very sedated, and they thought it was due to the sleep apnea and prescribed modafinil at discharge. So notably, the patient was also on gabapentin twice a day. He did have type 2 diabetes with neuropathy and trazodone 50 milligrams at at night for insomnia. So that already seems a little irrational to have these two sedating medications with a stimulant. And then upon interviewing the wife for the transitions of care med rack, she was asking to, to basically discontinue the modafinil, complaining that that it was a lot of work for her to have to take care of him because he was so awake during the day and she needed him to sleep more because she couldn't get the things that she wanted to get done, done in the day. And so it was very frustrating to hear this and, you know, trying to talk to her about the patient himself and, you know, how he was doing, if what was going on. And so we actually referred the case to our social work team at our place of work because, you know, we needed to have that investigated to make sure that, you know, there was definitely a question of the if the prescribing was appropriate, but then, you know, what are her intentions? Is she able to care for him? Is it that there needs to be a caregiver or that there is some sort of neglect or abuse happening? Right. And I think that's the reason I liked that case study, because there's such a delicate balance between inappropriate prescribing, inappropriate medications, Mm -hmm. and, you know, family members who just want to sedate them or keep them off their back kind of a thing. So it's, it's really difficult to make that distinction sometimes. I think it's a very complex ethical issue from the prescriber's end as well. I mean, do, do we want to contribute to this kind of an attitude to medicate? Basically, we're medicating the patient for the convenience of the caregiver. Right. Right. Yeah. Is that morally right? I think that comes up all the time. Absolutely. But we also have to consider being a caregiver is very stressful. Yeah. So, you know, you have to take care of yourself. That woman probably had her own health conditions. And then to have him like, you know, so I think what you were saying before, getting the social worker involved, getting extra support to help the caregiver. And sometimes what you can do to avoid abuse is caregiver education. Mm -hmm. And we have to spend more time explaining to those who help 
take care of these patients, how to use medications appropriately and recognize their level of stress. And at some point, you know, you have to make a decision. Do we hire somebody else to take care of the patient? Do we do we add family involvement in the care of the patient? So and those those discussions have to be ongoing all the time to prevent a stressed caregiver and potentially an abused patient. And then if a pharmacist suspects that a patient is being abused, what steps can that pharmacist take? So one of the things I was trying to point out in the presentation is that we don't actually have to have proof of abuse. We just have to have a suspicion of it. So whenever you think there may be a problem, there, there are ways to report. You can report to the police. You can report to Adult Protective Services. Or in the long-term care setting, you can report to the ombudsman. And so all you need is that certain level of suspicion that something is off. And when you're reporting, it, it's not necessarily a punitive step. It's a step that indicates that there needs to be more investigation. So if you, for, for example, if you call APS, there are social workers on the other end of that call. They will assess the situation. They will screen it for appropriateness of reporting, and they will conduct an investigation. And in many cases, it's an investigation that will result in identification of things that need to be changed in that patient's care. Not necessarily punitive in that the caregiver goes to jail or, or, or there's a fine. It, it's not a punitive process necessarily unless they find criminal intent and criminal activity. Most of the time, it's just another layer of healthcare personnel telling that family, look, you need more than what you're able to provide. And here's where you need the more of. Another thing that I liked was uh, you talked about bruising and how uh, do you think pharmacists could be able to identify abuse based on that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the picture I showed in the, in the presentation had a woman's wrist. We didn't have to look at her entire body. She was bruised in a very particular way around the wrist area as though somebody was grabbing her and pulling her sharply. She was not on any medications that would contribute to the bruising. And if you were to interview that person and you ask, do you have any bruises anywhere else? The answer would probably be no. And it was no in her case. And so that that's enough of a suspicious thing that you might want to report it. Again, not necessarily a punitive thing. In her case, there was a camera put in the room. And what they noted was that the caregiver was pulling her roughly into a sitting position and at a couple of instances getting her out of bed, just pulling on her. Her skin was thin, fragile, and so it bruised easily. That was definitely physical abuse in that case. All right. And then also just one other quick thing that I loved about it. What type of role does dementia play in their ability to communicate the abuse? So that was the most interesting thing of the entire two slides. You know, we assume that demented patients cannot communicate with us effectively, and that's absolutely not true. If an older adult who's demented is being abused, this study found they can actually very easily tell you what happened, how they got the bruises, and who did it. So as pharmacists, we really need to build relationships with patients where they're comfortable telling us and sharing with us those kinds of details. So obviously it has to be the right setting, the right communication, the right relationship, but it is possible to elicit important information from a demented patient. Very helpful. And then last of all, I kind of gave you guys the teaser on this a little bit earlier, but where is the balance between abusive care and abusive 
hospice care because there's a delicate balance between over sedating and just, you know, appropriate sedating. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I was thinking about this when you gave us the, the teaser and I don't know that I have a clear cut answer for it, but I think, you know, we always have to think about the goals of care for our patients. And there are studies that show that hospice and palliative care actually helps extend life for people and is very important for comfort of, of patients. And I think there is that balance of not overstating to make it overly easy for the caregiver, which I think right. maybe is what you're getting at. And it's just so patient specific. I think absolutely there could be instances, even within hospice care, where we kind of probably don't pay as much attention to those high risk medications that could be abusive. And maybe that's a really good role for pharmacists to take a better step in. I also think geriatric care in general is very nuanced. You have to pay attention to each individual patient, their response to every medication, little dose increments and see what the response is. And I think I'm sure there are good hospice programs out there and there are bad ones. Right. And the good ones really look at the individual's needs and expectations and they provide comfort without overdosing them and without knocking them out. And there are probably some programs that do the opposite. If you're looking for a good place, you have to do your homework and pick something for your loved ones that they will get the best care out of. Absolutely. I love that you said nuanced because that's just a great way to describe it because I feel like too many times hospice is just a blanket order yeah. for everybody. Yeah. And it's not individualized. So One of the reasons I love geriatrics, I've been at it for 30 years, it, every patient is different. I can look at all the med lists in the world and then until I talk to that patient individually and figure out what their goals of care should be and what they are for the patient, that's when I can make the most impact. Yeah. Awesome. I would say Dr. Gervich and I were just talking about this the other week with like smart sets in our institutions. And I think it's the same thing. You know, you can have blanket hospice orders, but it really prescribing should be individualized for these Absolutely. patients. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on today's show. We enjoyed having you. Yes, thank you. Thank oh, you. Pleasure. We've never done this before. <laughs> this is so cool. Yeah. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.